Today with me, I have Sebastian Faber, who uh, is the author of the book Exhuming Franco, which is out now on uh, Vanderbilt uh, University Press. You can get it for about 12 euros. Um, and he is a professor of Hispanic studies at Oberlin College. Welcome to Sorbonne Mesa, Sebastian. My pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for coming. Um, so Sebastian, uh, you, you must have worked quite quickly on this book because it's, it's about Exhuman Franco, which was 2019, right? So I'm, I'm sure the lockdown helped with your writing of that, but uh, why this specific topic? And, and, and can you just explain a bit about the background of the book for, for listeners that don't know, you know who Franco was and things like that, and sort of like the questions you're trying to address in the book? Sure. So, as you said, Franco was exhumed in the fall of 2019, um, and I wrote the book uh, very quickly, as you uh, intuit it. Um, and and it's, it's the most journalistic book I've written as yet. And in it, I guess, two of my previous strands of work come together. One is um, work I've done for the past 20 years or so on the way in which Spain remembers its own past, especially its 20th century past, and especially the civil war of the 1930s and the almost 40 year Franco dictatorship that followed it. And the other strand is um, an increasing interest that I've had in journalism. Um, since about 2014, I've been uh, writing with my friend Becker Seguin, regular um, pieces on Spanish current affairs for the Nation magazine, mm -hmm. um, while also writing about U.S. and Dutch public affairs and, and Spanish topics for the Spanish media. So I write fairly regularly for outlets like La Marea and Contexto and Frontera mm. de. Um, and in a way, this little book brings together my interest in, in issues of memory and commemoration and uh, journalism. So it's a very journalistic book. It's, its core content are interviews with mm. a broad range of people, mostly on the left. Um, but the main questions that it asks are have to do with historical memory. It, basically, the questions it asks is, what does this exhumation of Franco from his grave at the Valley of the Fallen mean? Does it mean anything? And how more broadly should we think about the legacies that the um, Francoism might still um, impress on Spain today. And my point of departure is kind of the way in which the left and the right in Spain have thought about this question. Um, the right generally has embraced the idea that the transition to democracy following Franco's death in the late 70s um, kind of took care of any um, uh, any remaining accounts that needed to be settled, including the big question of reconciliation. So according to the right, when Spain became a democracy, um, that is to say, when the Franco regime um, agreed how to transition to democracy with the anti-Franco opposition, Spain was reconciled, could move forward, and that was that. Um, the left has for a long time also had that view that the uh, transition of, of the late 1970s kind of took care of any business having to do with, with the civil war and the dictatorship. Um, but uh, since about 2000, a part of the left has begun re rethinking that uh, proposition. 
and has come to embrace a much more critical view of the transition that includes the idea that the transition as it was done, in fact, left a lot undone, a lot of business unfinished, um, having to do mostly with justice and with memory. That is to say, with the rights and demands of the victims of the Franco regime and the people who fell victim to violence during the Civil War, and the way in which Spain has narrated to itself the uh, the story of the war and the dictatorship, and that's what I mean by memory, the way in which mm. these things are taught in the schools, the way in which they're expressed in monuments or in, in street names and things like that. Now, this, this more critical side of the left that has kind of re been re revisiting the, the, um, the, the view of the transition um, has embraced uh, the idea that um, because the transition was incomplete, if not a total failure, the democracy that resulted from it, Spain today, Spain's current democracy, also has some major fundamental basic flaws to it. And they've tended to link those flaws directly to an unprocessed um, series of legacies from the Franco dictatorship or a series of continuities between the way that Spain was organized politically um, under Franco's long rule and the way that it functions today. So what I do in the book is I talk to, to uh, a couple dozen people, um, mostly on the left, who have very different, different views about these bigger questions. Like, is it true that Spain today is a flawed democracy compared to other European democracies? And if so, is it true that most of those flaws can be traced back to unprocessed or undealt with legacies from the Franco period. Some people I talk to say, yes, absolutely. That's absolutely the case. Just look at the, at, the, at the judiciary, look at the continued power of the Catholic Church, look at who holds economic power, who are the rich families and the rich corporations in Spain today. If you look at all those things, it's so clear that so little has changed since Francoism and so much is still in place. Other people I talk to say, well, no, that's really a red herring. Um, sure, it's true that there are uh, continuities in corporate power and political power, but that's par for the course everywhere. Spain is not unique in that. And in reality, the problems that Spain faces today, so whether you're talking about the rise of the far right, like Vox, or whether you talk about the problems it has in terms of its, its the organization of its, of its multinational a state, the, the system of autonomous regions, all that, or whether you're talking about the way it deals with migration, whether you talk about the problem of gender violence, um, all those issues are real challenges, but they really have very little to do with Francoism and making it seem as if they are kind of a, a Francoism that still exists today actually um, it prevents you from, from properly analyzing, let alone properly solving them. So this whole notion that Spain today is still kind of um, a prisoner of its Francoist past or still weighed down by, by, the, by, by the heavy weight of, of Franco's legacies is politically um, a mistake because it, 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 uh, may, it, it causes you to, for example, misrecognize the enemy. So if, if the far right is, is the new danger, so Vox, anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQ, um, nostalgic or and not, not um, nostalgic of, 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 of the dictatorship and all that. 
if you brand a party like Vox as just kind of a holdover of Francoism or a rebirth of Francoism, you are um, you, you are inviting a, a, a wrong analysis and therefore um, the wrong solutions. The proper way to analyze Vox, these people say, is to associate them with Le Pen in France and the uh, AfD in, in Germany or, or the, um, the Forum for Democracy in the ne Netherlands. It's part of that kind of, it's, it's, it's the neoliberal uh, far right that really, even though on the surface it makes some gestures that are nostalgic of Francoism, that's not its core. And mm -hmm. to continue to see Spain as still very Francoist is, um, is not productive, is, is not, is not uh, useful. So in the book, I kind of contrast those different views um, and I do it kind of topic by topic. So there's a chapter about the judicial uh, power and the, the, the courts in Spain, the judiciaries, to what extent is it true that the deep conservatism of, of, of many Spanish judges, which is kind of an objective fact, to what extent it's true that that is a kind of Francoism or not. I have a chapter about the media and, and the, the problem of corporate and political um, influence on, on the mainstream media. Uh, I have a chapter on, on politics, on political culture. So how do political parties function and how do political rivals interact with each other and how are political decisions made? Um, so in all these sort of, um, by going this topic by topic and talking to these different people, what I end up laying out is less an analysis on my own than um, proof of the uh, much deeper division of opinions that is there even among the left than an outside observer would at first assume. Mm. And uh, talking about, I mean, you've got these obviously sort of contrasting views on the left. Um, and then I, I noticed in the introduction to your book, you sort of say with, you know, the right is kind of, kind of, uh, of more or less one of one or a, a wider, a certain opinion that, you know, we've moved on since the transition. Um, how do you think the removal of Franco from the Valley of Fallen uh, is, does it have any symbolism or any significance in um, the way that the historical memory impinges upon Spain today? And um, what did you think of the way that it was done? Because I remember watching it in, at work um, and a lot of people just didn't, they were interested in it, but they didn't want to talk about it. A lot of people watching on their phone, but no one, no one sort of mentioned it. Um, and a lot of people didn't like the fact that it was done on television in the middle of the day. A lot of some people told me that they wished it had been done like um, when Franco had his statue removed from Nuevos Ministerios. I think it was done in the middle of the night, and then it was like just announced the next morning this statue has been removed. Um, so how do you think the, the Valley of the Fallen, Franco's removal, and how does that tie into some of the, the other the other things you're talking about in the book? Yeah, I, I think you're right that there's a lot to criticize about the way that it was done. Um, on the other hand, the government, the Sanchez government, uh, was tied by judicial um, considerations as well. Uh, but I mean, it it, it it's pretty clear that it was done in part um, 
uh, with the hopes of um, of gaining some political capital from it, right? So the for the Socialist Party in Spain, the, the Labour Party, um, ever since Zapatero in the early 2000s, um, a kind of um, sympathetic view of the um, of the demands on the left of the of the victims of the dictatorship uh, and demands of for for what is called the recovery of historical memory has been for the for the socialist party kind of an easy way to score political points right to um to 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 restore some of the political capital that it's that it lost through the kind of um blair like embrace of the third way under mm -hmm. under felipe gonzalez yeah, uh, that, that's true. So there's there's definitely opportunism in there. On the other hand, accusing a politician of opportunism doesn't mean anything because politicians are by definition opportunists. <laughs> um, I think there are two interesting things to, to say in relation to the exhumation itself and, it, and its results. On the one hand, I would say it was surprisingly low impact. Um, mm -hmm. It's true that there was a lot to do in, in, it, in the run up to it between the the decisions of the courts and the protests of the family and and all that that's true um but after that it kind of like fell dead it's like it, it fell flat um there was a, there was once he was moved removed um not much happened so in a sense one one way to read that is that it was so long overdue that by the time it happened people were like oh yeah well and they moved on on the other hand, though, it's also true that um, the current um, the coalition government has been very serious about writing a new law of what is now called law of democratic memory, in which the Valley of the Fallen and what to do with it now that Franco is gone um, occupies a central place. So I do think that as we are now gearing up for the parliamentary debates, around this new law of democratic memory. Um, I think we'll, the, the whole question of what to do with the valley, which is kind of a, the next chapter in after that, after removing the body of Franco, will be um, front and center yet again. And um, so the question there is, you know, this massive fascist monument built over 20 years time between 1939 and 1959, um, that is sitting there. So what do you do with it? Okay. There is still a, a, an order of, of monks that live there. Those are going to be removed. That's pretty clear. But then what do you do? Do you do something with that massive cross that you can see from miles around? Do you remove it? Do you let it be? Do you uh, just destroy that, blow the entire thing up? Because who wants to have a fascist monument? It's like uh, that's outside of Madrid. On the other hand, do you or do you keep it in place as kind of a, a live museum that you can then resignify with proper plaques and proper um introductions and guides and whatever you have um those questions are very um, um very important but they're also um they the left is not united on them at all there's strong differences of opinion among the left about what to do with that um the right meanwhile um sadly i think is kind of stuck in the same mode that it adopted around the time the first law of historical memory was approved, which is in 2007. At that point, it was toward the end of the Zapatero government, so right before 
the Great Recession that ended the government of the left in Spain and inaugurated a long period of right-wing government. Um, when that law was passed in 2007, the, uh, the right bloc, which is then mostly the Partido Popular, uh, massively voted against, right? Kind of in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of position that I would characterize as, as denialist, right? Like the notion that we don't need to deal with this. All this is unnecessary. This is just stirring up the pot when things are perfectly settled. Um, let's not do this. Mm. I would have hoped that over the past, um, what is it, 15 years, 14 years, the Spanish center right, it likes to see itself still, the Partido Popular, um, which likes to see itself on, on par with the uh, the CDU in Germany, let's say, right? Sort of the, mm. the, the yeah. center right European mainstream, mm. or for that matter, you know, the VVD in, in Holland or, or the, the Tories in England. Mm. Um, one would have hoped that the sort of the arrival of a new generation of leadership in that center right party would have led to a more um, nuanced view of what what transitional justice looks like and what it might look like in Spain. Um, but uh, sadly, uh, the uh, Pablo Casado and 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 his and and his circle, the, the current young leadership of the Partido Popular, seems to have decided to stick to the 2007 denialist stance or worse, to uh, move closer to what is now the stance of the new party on the right of the Pepe box, mm. which is a kind of um, renewed defense of Francoism and a renewed demonization on the one hand of the Second Republic of the 1931 to 1936 and of the uh, memory movement, which has demanded, like I said, the recovery of historical memory and has fought for victims' rights. So the, the kind of um, flirting with kind of a neo-Franquist revisionist view of Spanish history um, that the current Pepe uh, is doing um, would seem to indicate that when the new law of democratic memory is debated in the parliament, it will again vote against. And that's very disappointing because... Um, like with many big challenges in, in countries, for some things, this is so important that there be a broad political consensus, that, that, that there's some kind of space mm. where beyond your sort of standard political disagreements, there are some things people agree on. And in Spain, like in, in many other countries these days, polarization is such that on the biggest challenges of, that countries face, climate change in the US, for example, or uh, in Spain, the... the, 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 the um, the question of education, right? Education reform, yeah. um, or for that matter, the the, the way to organize um, the country, which, as we all know, is a multinational state. Those big questions are not ones where consensus of any kind seems possible at this point, mm. and um, and that's very disappointing. I think the the law will probably pass. It'll be um, because the current coalition government doesn't have a majority of seats, but it has a majority support. And I think that the same parties that supported the um, investiture of Pedro Sanchez 
will again support this and that they have supported budget the budget laws so far will again support this law of democratic memory but but the denialism of the right is just like i said is, is disappointing and and mm -hmm. um and and especially um in a european context where even in countries like germany um the far right is revisiting and, re and 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 um questioning now kind of the the 1960s 70s 80s 90s consensus around the attitude to adopt toward the second world war and the holocaust mm. to have the spanish right jump so quickly on that far right bandwagon when it comes to spanish history is just sad mm. yeah no i i remember some of the comments by pablo casado when and during the 2000 well during the last lot of elections and it was it was he was very it was quicker to jump further right than he's trying to out vox vox i heard a lot of people say with regards to the the left and right narrative uh you talk about in your book that that it, there's no like like the the right is more a bit more coherent in their stance the left is less they've been able less to sort of mold a narrative around francoism and its effect on spain up until the modern day what what were you what did you find your uh different interlockers said about the the narrative that was formed yeah i, I mean um as i said some people i spoke to are very convinced of the fact that at bottom most problems with Spanish democracy today can be traced back to Francoism. Um, and therefore that a, 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 a response to those challenges or, or, or um, a, um, the approval of, um, of Spanish democracy can only happen through addressing those legacies from Francoism at the economic level, at the judicial level, at the level of the media, at the level of politics um at the level of of education for example mm. whereas other people are much more doubtful whether that is in fact true mm. um and um one of the things i point out is that the idea that spain is um, still weighed down by the legacies of francoism is often linked to the idea of Spain as an exception in Europe. Right, okay. And that is often linked to a particular image or series of images of what has happened in other European countries. Hmm. Um, and what I try to point out is that those images of what has happened in other European countries are often um, a bit superficial. So, the memory movement had a really, really tough fight to face starting in 2000, right? They had to basically try to undo decades worth of received ideas about Spanish mm -hmm. history, about the transition, yeah. about Spain's relationship to its past, about these, the Civil War, about the Second Republic. And one very effective rhetorical way to do that was to basically confront the left and right, this, this to sort of establish left and right, uh, with its own aspirations to European identity, right? So when Spain becomes a democracy, the big thing to become for Spain is European. 
right? We, we want to become like Leicester, a normal European country. And Europe always defined as every, everything in Europe that's not Spain became kind of like the thing to strive for in, in all fields, like culture and yeah, yeah. economics and politics and whatever. Yeah. So in a very effective rhetorical strategy that the memory movement adopted starting in the, two th in, in, in the early 2000s was to say, okay, well, you want to be European? Well, let's, okay, let's look at this. So we have statues to Franco. There's a huge monument to Franco right outside of Madrid. Aren't there statues to Hitler in Germany? Are there, is there a monument to, to Hitler in Berlin? No, there's not. So Spain, so the, to emphasize kind of the Spanish difference vis-a-vis -vis other European countries. Another, um, another um, narrative um, thread that is of course true, but also was invoked a lot, was that, look, if you think about post-World War European democracies, especially in Western Europe, also in the East, they were founded on the principle of anti-fascism, right? So France after 1945, Holland after 1945, Germany eventually after 1945, we're all, all, all very much based on that. What we are is anti-fascist, right? The, 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 to be a Democrat means to be an anti-fascist. In Spain, that has never uh, stuck, that idea, right? So the way the transition was done in the late 70s, um, uh, implied kind of a, a, a kind of a sidestepping of this whole idea of, of fascism and anti-fascism. So, um, and that has evolved in Spain into the idea that democracy is something like the midpoint between fascism and anti-fascism. Mm. Right. This is, in Spain has been a received idea on the right. Right. That to be a democrat means you're not a fascist, of course. But you're also not an anti-fascist, right? So, and yeah. fascism and anti-fascism are both radical positions. Democracy is in the middle. Funnily enough, that is the position that the new right in, in Europe and the United States has now been adopting, right? So, when Trump said after um, Charlottesville, there are good people on both sides, that's kind of that kind of midpoint position. And Spain has been the mainstream position for the right to adopt. Um, so. Um, so the, the, the position of the right has been kind of stable in, in that way, whereas on the left, it's been much more unstable. Right. And you uh, you compare the different countries um, and often Spain's transition is when it was first happened was sort of held up as a, like a good, a, a good transition really. Um, and as you said, that's sort of been brought into question. Um, and often people compare Spain with Germany and um, things like that. What comparisons do you make in your books? And, and did you find any anyone say anything interesting about the uh, these comparisons? Yeah, I think I mean the, the key for me the key thing that I that I learned myself while speaking to people around this is that. Um, Thinking of Spain as 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 a as a as a major exception to other countries is not very useful. Mm. It's true that there are many things in Spain that are very specific to Spain. Yeah. There are so many things that are really much less different than the than the the um, the left in this struggle that I just described mm. um, has claimed. Um, so, like Germany. Um, People I talk, historians I talked to pointed out, look, Germany, yeah, I mean, this, this supposed denazification of post-World War II is very relative. 
like Adenauer had to build a whole new state, a whole new government. And of course he resorted to people who had been members of the Nazi party. And what else was he gonna do? Like, mm. you can't just forego all those other people. And, and of course the US recruited Nazi spies. And of course, um, and, and, and of course in France, um, until the 60s or early, early 70s, the whole issue of collaboration was, was washed over. So, and of course in, in Italy, the way that uh, that Italian fascism um, was dealt with after World War II is all much less exemplary than critics of the Spanish situation tend to claim for, for, for argumentative reasons, right? I mean, it makes sense within the Spanish debate to constantly compare Spain to other countries as a way to strengthen one's position. I mean, that's it, it, politicians do that often, right? I thought back, for example, like when Bernie Sanders in, in the presidential campaign in the United States compared the U.S. healthcare system to that of most other advanced democracies. He made it seem as if in the other places it was all running perfectly and the U.S. is way behind, right? Whereas if you talk to anybody, a, a, a Dutch person or German person or French person, they have their, or, 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 or British person for the, for the matter, they have their own complaints about the way public healthcare works in those countries, right? So, but there's, a way, I think, in which the, the 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 idea that Spain is an exception among the left has become a little bit counterproductive, um, and it's good to take a step back and think: Well, how different is Spain really, and where is it really different, and where is it not, and what can Spain learn from other countries, and what can Spain teach other countries as well? Right to have a more productive, um, proper com sets of comparisons, and. Um, so I think that's that's one of the um, main things I took away myself from from talking to people, um, and um, I think what what that allows you to do is just have a more nuanced analysis of the present situation, without kind of falling back to these knee jerk um, visions of Spain as an exception. And and one of the points I try to make is that this constant underscoring of Spain's exceptionality can become a form of fatalism, right? right? Yeah. If you, because it, it, it can kind of become a way to basically give up all hope. Like Spain mm -hmm. will never, right, change. And that of course, again, as part of a very Spanish, very urgent political fight has been also the tactic adopted by some of the independence movements or um, the, the, in, in, uh, or sovereignista movements in Catalonia and the Basque country, right? Where, mm. of course, it's in, in the independence movement's interest in Catalonia to paint Spain as unreformable or irreformable, right? Where you can say so Spain, not only is Spain still Francoist, but it will always be Francoist. It's yeah. just a hopeless case. And literally, this is what at one point a friend of mine and I interviewed Puigdemont and his point was like, look, we've been trying and trying as Catalonia to get Spain to modernize and to become European. And still it's so damn Francoist. I mean, come on, what can you do? We're just, we, we've got to cut ties and move on because Spain is just a lost cause altogether, right? Mm. So that kind of fatalism you also, I think, see sometimes appearing among the Spanish left. And I think that's not, that's not healthy enough. It's not productive, and it's not really doesn't really correspond to reality. Yeah, and 
that's I mean that's a really interesting point. I mean there there's been a lot of talk, hasn't there, about a second transition, uh, which is like the idea of the well, I suppose it's like a continuation of the first transition in the seventh of the late seventies. Um, but also what you're saying about the sort of um, sort of cynical attitude or like Spain is different, um, everything is the problem of Frank uh, because of Franco. And there's a you know there's a popular joke on I've seen on the right uh, on Twitter, which is basically, oh something's going wrong quickly mention Franco is like they're all, they're always saying that about the left like oh quickly mention Franco um, the the price of the electricity has gone up or something. And I mean, it's a very cynical joke, obviously, but uh, as you as you say, like it can be, it becomes sort of self defeating. Um, and I think that was sort of shown in the the May uh, elections in Madrid, the regional elections in Madrid, right? One of the biggest uh, um, mistakes, if you would, of, of probably of the left, and and I, I know several people on the left have sort of agreed to this was that they went down this road of it's either you know fascism or democracy trying to you know reinvent the sides of the yeah. civil war um but my my question to you is what would that second transition look like um and you know what would it take for spain to get there yeah just to go back to what you mentioned earlier uh I do think there's been a tendency, on the one hand, th that opportunism I mentioned earlier of the mm -hmm. Socialist Party in particular, but the left in general, where it seems that going back to what is basically a form of a culture war, right, around yeah. historical memory, um, is seen as kind of an, an easy way to mobilize the electorate or to score political points or, or to build up local capital. Um, I think that that has the risk of backfiring um, in general, right? I mean, when, when we talk about culture wars, generally culture wars is the preferred, generally engaging culture wars benefits the right, right? I mean, we've learned yeah. that in, in, in the West in the past couple of decades, since Reagan really, um, and Thatcher. Um, so, so that is, um, it's true that, so the, the left's tendency to when, when, um, when in danger, pull the historical memory card um, has has been a very uh, unevenly successful tactic. Um, more broadly, I would say that there's been a tendency, and I might, in myself as well, in part because I work on this all the time, to overestimate how important regular people think this whole question of memory is. Right. right? So I think there's been a tendency to overestimate the um the way how much people care especially young people mm. um which ironically the fact that they care little in spain is ironically a consequence of the little attention that these yeah. issues are given in education right it's, yeah. it's, it's a self it's a self-fulfilling prophecy or it's a, it's a recurring it's a vicious cycle yeah. in that way Definitely. um but i think also going back to this point of of analysis and solutions um, the notion of the second transition might well be overestimating the extent to which solving Spain's biggest challenges has to go through revisiting its past. Mm. Right? So 
um, that's the, one of the questions that comes up in the book is, so if you, if, if you wanna, I mean, S Spain, like many countries, could be much more democratic, right? The way political parties function, the way the media functions, the, the yeah. corporate influence in the media, the political influence on in the media, um, the, now the rise of, of social media and fake news, all that corrupts or, or diminishes democracy. Yeah. Um, how do you solve that? So do you solve that by revisiting the past? Do you solve that by more properly teaching um, secondary school um, um, kids about what happened in the past? Yeah, maybe that could be a, a part of the puzzle, but it's not the, the, the one solution perhaps, right? Yeah. So, so the question, to what extent do do the solutions necessarily go through the whole notion of history or not, right? That, that's, that, that's a big question that's not clear. Um, so that I'll know all on one side. On the other hand, the notion of a second transition um, can be defended, I think, and, and I, would, I would defend in this way, by saying very simply that, look, Spain transitions to democracy in 1978, let's say, right? At that point, the world knew very little and hadn't thought much about what it means to, to, to transition from a, a dictatorship or dictatorial situation with, with a lot of state violence to a democracy. Yeah. Um, and many of what we now see as the flaws of the Spanish transition were partly due to that lack of, of experience of the world, right? Yeah. Um, since then, we've seen many transitions to democracy of many different types, right? In Latin America, Chile, Argentina, Peru, Colombia mm -hmm. to some extent, Mexico to some extent, um, let alone the Middle East and Eastern Europe, right? So there's been many other examples. And over those 40 some years, that experience has been built up and expertise has been developed. And um, international legislation, has, I mean, international law has been developed, international rights, international bodies, uh, treaties. So if you look back to the Spanish tradition, it's a little bit like, like looking at an MS-DOS system in, 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 in the yeah. era of the MacBook, right? Like yeah, it needs yeah. an update, right? So if you think of the Spanish transition as an update, if you think of the second transition as an update, of, uh, of of what was of what happened in the late seventies, that kind of makes sense, right? And in a way, yeah, yeah. I think that is probably the best way to view this new legislative initiative, these the law of, of democratic memory. Mm. It's a good faith attempt, and I, I would underscore the good faith, right? Because I think, despite the opportunism that's always involved, I think the current government is really working in good faith to try to do as yeah. good a job as they can. It's a good faith attempt to update the Spanish operating system um, to, to, to match what is now considered sort of best practices um, around issues of, of transitional memory. And that have, it has to do with, what do you do with mass graves? Even though, even though they're 80 years old, you still have to yeah. do something with them. What are victims' rights? What, what is the place of amnesty laws in a situation where there's been crimes against humanity, right? All those questions are just sort of, at this point, almost um, sort of standard, right? And in Spain, they've not been addressed for a series of circumstances, yeah. and it's high time they be addressed. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that 
to go back to the position of the right, I think the right's refusal to acknowledge that is for me the the, the biggest proof is that the, the biggest proof that it is miles miles removed from the what they think of as the the sort of European center right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I think this links in with it is in another part of the book you talk about um, sort of Spain's uh, view of itself but internationally and and the recent government well, the current government's uh, sort of attempts to to show like a modern a modernization of Spain um, ha, does this sort of the way that the international community views Spain do you think that's impacted upon the Spain's ability to sort of confront that it needs this sort of software upgrade, as you as you as you put it, um, and the the legacy of Francoism. Yeah, no, it, it, it's been it's played a major role. I think there's a curious, I think it's a, it's a relatively curious phenomenon for a country like, like Spain. You think about it, Spain is on the one hand a major world player, has been historically, and um, and it's 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 one of Europe's biggest economies. Um, it's 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 more important than say Belgium or 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 the Czech Republic or something like that. It's, and it's a former empire. Mm. Um, so it, it occupies a kind of a funny position, um, also in its own self-image, in the concert of nations, right? In this sort of like this this eternal competition among nations in the world to be the top or the best or the this or the that. Um, add to that, it's curious 20th century history with its civil war, like neutral in both world wars. <laughs> and yeah. then this, this mass civil war that attracts yeah, the world's yeah. attention in between 1936 and 1939. And add to that, since the 19th century, or late 18th century, this fascination of other countries with Spain as an exotic yeah. And, and almost medieval in those countries. So all those things together today, I think are still manifest themselves in what I think of as a kind of unhealthy obsession of Spaniards in general, but especially the elites, corporate elites, media elites, political elites with Spain's image abroad. Right. And the constant idea that, the, that, that other countries um, have a mistaken image of Spain and generally too negative an image of Spain, right? So that this, this idea that the Spaniards have that they are constantly um, underestimated by, um, by other governments, by, other corp by foreign corporations, by, by mm -hmm. tourists even, right? That has, I think, um, is, is still very present. And, and the, the things I describe in the book, sort of the, the, the efforts of the Spanish government to very consciously improve Spain's image abroad um, are part of that, as is, of course, the, um, the, the sort of the counter politics of the, of the Basque and Catalan independence movements to paint Spain in a negative image. Mm. Now, what we've seen in Spain, especially in the last 10 years, is a kind of a, a cottage industry of popularizing writers who revisit yet again the idea of the black legend. Um, there's this, this notion that Spain's continued negative image abroad is really the result of a plot of Spain's historical enemies, being the 
uh, Great Britain and Holland and, and since, 18, since the 1890s, the United States that have cons insistently unfairly written Spanish history in such a way that the Spaniards are the barbarians and they're backward and they're violent and they're whatever. Um, so this, this notion that Spain is being treated unfairly in the international, in the international public opinion is still very strong and has now gained new political capital uh, in, in, among the right, right? Again here, weirdly enough, the Spanish right was kind of has been anticipating what we now see elsewhere. So if you think about Donald, one of Donald Trump's last acts in office before he was he he um, he left the White House was to accept this report by a commission that he had had appointed to call for a different way of teaching American history in American high schools and and middle schools. Right, this idea that we should again return to a patriotic teaching history based on patriotic pride and highlight the heroism and the good things and not not this critical view the same you see in germany the same you see in Holland, the same you see in in, in the uk right mm. um in spain the right has again in spain that's been kind of been a, a standard position of the right as well right the sort of rejection of, of the critical view of spanish history when it comes to the congress of the americas or when it comes to it's colonizing of European spaces, or when it comes to um, the dominance of the Catholic Church, or the rejection of the Enlightenment, or the war against Napoleon, right? All those episodes. Um, so yeah, so the I think the, the the fascination or the obsession that Spain has with its image abroad is um, is an important element in this. Um, that said. Spain is also not an exception. Every advanced country's country in the world has agencies dedicated to boosting the image of its country and the opportunities of its businesses and the study of its culture and the publication of translations from its literature, right? Like in so in that sense, that's not exceptional. But the way in which the Spanish media and Spanish politicians constantly sort of jump up as soon as Spain's image abroad is at stake. That is kind of, uh, I think, pretty, uh, it's more pronounced in Spain than other countries. Right, okay. Well, thank you very much for, um, thanks for very much for letting me interview you, Sebastian. Uh, where, yeah, can people, where can people buy your book? On, online at most, most stores, I take it? They can buy it online at most stores. They can order it at their local bookstore. Um, it's not expensive. Um, if you're into ebooks, it's even cheaper. I think it's less than 10 euros. Great. Um, so yeah, I hope people enjoy it. Good. Thanks very much. And uh, I hope to I hope you come back on Silver Messer at some point. I'd love to, Alan. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.